True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Tiso Blackstar Group, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, and Sweatin Live. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of the Tiso Blackstar Group or any of its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and this is our fortnightly mini-sode, TCSA's Spotlight, where we discuss updates to cases we've covered and cases that are in the media at the moment. Before we get into this week's discussion, I'd like to clarify something about Episode 8, The Unsolved Murder of Bubble Schroeder. In the episode, I stated that all three men who were with Jacoba on the evening of her death have passed away. One of our listeners, Paula Grubin, sent me some information after the episode dropped that indicated that this may not be entirely correct. When I researched the case, I found three different sources, including a genealogy website, which indicated that the men had passed away. After Paula made contact, I looked into it again, and it appears as though one of them is indeed still alive. It doesn't really make a material difference to the story, but because accuracy is so important to me, I wanted to clarify that for the listeners and offer my apologies for that piece of misinformation. And now on with today's minisode. The following episode may contain sensitive material, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information in our show notes. A really disturbing case which appeared in court recently was that of the so-called Dross Rapist. In September 2018, we were made aware of an incident that occurred at a Dross restaurant in Pretoria, where a man had been found in the toilets, locked in a cubicle with a seven-year-old girl. At the time, it was alleged that the man had accosted the child while she was walking to the toilets, and sexually assaulted her in one of the cubicles. Footage taken by a bystander did the rounds, which showed the naked suspect being confronted by the child's mother and members of staff at the restaurant when he was found in the toilet cubicle with the child. The child was also in a partial state of undress, and both she and the man had blood on their bodies. In the footage, the man claimed that he had gone to use the toilet and found the girl there. His sobriety is questioned at one stage, and he claims that he is totally sober, and in the same breath, he says he's running a tab at the bar, and then refers to himself as a, quote, mental man, end quote. The man was arrested, and he would wait a year for his trial to commence. On the 9th of September this year, the man's identity was revealed when he arrived in court for his first day of trial. 
His name is Nicholas Nino, and he is a 22-year-old man whose social media profiles claim that he is engaged. After his arrest, he was found to have been under the influence of the drug CAT at the time of the crime. He was taken for psychiatric evaluation, and in February this year, it was determined that he was sane and fit to stand trial. Nino was charged with rape, assault, kidnapping, defeating the ends of justice, and possession of an illegal substance. On being asked to plead, Nino pleaded guilty to rape, defeating the ends of justice, and possession of an illegal substance. He pleaded not guilty to the assault charge, and the kidnapping charge was withdrawn. The charge of defeating the ends of justice stems from the fact that Nino flushed a child's panties down the toilet. This was after he allegedly wiped the blood off parts of his body with a child's underwear, which the mother of the child claimed to witness. Despite his guilty plea, the state was not happy with his version of events, and they proceeded to call six witnesses to prove their own version of events. The state's version is that Nino was actively seeking an encounter with the child that day, and that he had moved to a table which was closest to the children's play area. It was further alleged that when the minor in question left the play area to go to the toilet, he had followed her and forced her into the toilet cubicle. The state also alleges that Nino had assaulted the child's mother and other bystanders, with his belt, when they tried to detain him. Nino's version of events was slightly different, and I will warn you that the following details are difficult to listen to. Nino said that he had gone to the woman's toilets by accident when he wanted to snort cat. He said that the girl had asked to come into the cubicle that he was in to urinate, and he let her in and put her on the toilet. He says that it was at this time that he forced his penis into the child's mouth and penetrated her vagina with two of his fingers. He claimed that he immediately realized what he was doing was wrong and stopped. Under South African law, the non-consensual penetration of the vagina with any body part or foreign object is considered to be rape. The witnesses that testified included two waitresses who worked in the children's play area that night. One waitress says that she felt as though she had failed the child's mother by allowing her to leave the area on her own and that she had quit her job and no longer wanted to work with children because of the incident. I feel for this woman. Because although the restaurant's rules in the play area do state that a child is not allowed to go to the toilet unaccompanied, if anyone has visited a restaurant where there is a play area, I honestly don't believe that it's possible to enforce a rule like that. Children enter and leave those play areas constantly, and it is often so chaotic in there that I cannot believe that it's possible for anyone to actually keep an eye on the whereabouts of every child. There is often only one or two people on duty in the area, and if two children want to go to the toilet at any given time, that's a problem. Also, let's face it, 
these people are not trained childminders. They are waitrons. And the other side of it is, I'm sure they probably don't have background checks to see if they are safe to be around children either. So while I understand this waitress's feelings of guilt and regret, I really don't think that anyone can place any blame on her. The blame in this situation falls squarely and directly on the shoulders of Nicholas Nano. When I heard that he had pleaded guilty, I immediately felt relieved that the child would not have to testify. But unfortunately, this was not the case. The state still called the victim to testify, although she did not have to be in the courtroom, and the testimony was given in camera and through a trained mediator who asked her the questions that the prosecution and defense wanted answers to. The state said that it was imperative that the victim testify to show the severity of Nuno's actions. This past Monday, Nuno was officially found guilty of the charges against him, and pre-sentencing will now proceed. His now ex-fiancé's mother spoke to the media shortly afterwards, and it came to light that Nuno became a father in December 2018, while he was in jail. His ex-fiancé was pregnant with his child at the time of Nuno being arrested, and he has allegedly only seen the child once. The ex-fiancé's mother told the media that regardless of what sentence Nino gets, he will never see his child again. Now, this is an interesting side topic that I did some further research into. As much as the mother of the child might want to protect him from the crimes of his father, it is not really up to her whether Nino gets to see his child or not. Despite his conviction, he still has rights as a father, and if he were to be freed, I'm playing devil's advocate here, he could legally petition the court for a parenting plan to be put in place. The courts would of course have to consider his convictions being of a sexual nature against minors, and would probably recommend supervised visits. But the mother of the child could not legally stop him from seeing the child, if the court grants access. As for while he is in prison, he can request that the child be brought to visit him, but from the research I did, it doesn't seem as though he can force anyone to bring the child to prison. A very interesting, albeit very tragic, case also came to judgments in the last week. The case of missing three-year-old Lee Mentor. Lee went missing on the 16th of March 2018, while in the care of his mother's then-boyfriend, Onka Mashanini. Onka was supposed to drop Lee off with the child's grandmother on the afternoon of the 16th, but claimed that when he went to the woman's house before the arranged time, he found a man and a woman standing outside the house who said that they were family. He claimed that the couple had said that they would take Lee to his grandmother's place of work, so he had handed the child over and left. Lee Mentor was never seen again. When Lee's family went to report the child missing, the police officer that assisted them recommended that Onka be brought in for questioning, as he was the last person to see the child. Onka was questioned and arrested on the same day. 
it is alleged that he has stuck to the same story throughout the last year and a half. Police searched the Mashinini residence and found blood in the bathroom, which was a DNA match to Lee. Despite Lee's body never having been found, Onka was charged with premeditated murder, kidnapping, child neglect, defeating the ends of justice, as well as an aggravated robbery charge, which is not related to this case. Onka was not the child's biological father, but Lee's mother says that she had trusted him to look after the child while they were dating, because he had always shown great love for him. In a move which was unusual for the South African justice system, although not the first such conviction, Onka Mashanini was found guilty of Lee's murder based on circumstantial and DNA evidence. The family states on social media that they do feel that justice has been served, but they hope that Onka will still reveal the whereabouts of Lee's body during his pre-sentencing hearing, in order to possibly mitigate his sentence. Searches have been conducted in the area around Mashanini's home, in Rodeport, and it has been reported that police may conduct a more thorough search of the grounds at the residence, because witnesses claim to have seen building renovations being done there. Onka's family still lives in the house, despite his conviction. The reason I find this judgment interesting is because it is notoriously difficult all over the world to get a murder conviction in a case where a body has not been found. Another local so-called no-body murder conviction was the 2005 conviction of William Nkuna for the murder of his girlfriend, Constable Francis Rasucha. At the time of his conviction, Rasucha's body had not been found, but it was determined that she was undoubtedly deceased and that Nkuna had been responsible. Thankfully for Rasuke's family, in 2012, when Nkuna's house was sold, contractors recovered the remains of Rasuke, buried on his property. Listener Charmaine O'Neill has been kind enough to send me the full judgment document relating to this case and I will definitely cover it in a full episode in the future. We are all deeply aware of the several murders of women recently, which have caused a major outcry and led to protests both in South Africa and across the world. In some of these cases, the perpetrators have been caught, and in others, they haven't. If we look at three of these cases, the murders of Megan Kramer, Uyuneni Mwetana and Jesse Hess and her grandfather, a common thread emerges. In both Megan and Uyuneni's cases, a private investigator, Noel Pratton, was involved. I found this interesting when it came out recently, as it wasn't widely publicised during the investigations, and it appears that the private investigator played a significant role in the arrests in both cases. There is now a crowdfunding platform open to raise funds to get Noel on Jesse Hess's case. Traditionally, private investigators would be called in by a family when they feel that a formal police investigation has been insufficient or that a dedicated resource 
would be beneficial to the case. I find it interesting that there seems to be a trend in South Africa where PIs are being hired almost at the outset of a case, and at least in the recent cases I looked at, this seems to be the difference between catching a perpetrator early on or having the case go cold. Now, I'm not for a minute saying that the police are incapable of solving crimes without private investigators, as there are many cases that are solved quickly and cleanly by the SAPS without external assistance. I do think that this trend points to a symptom of a deeper problem, though, and that is a possible lack of resources. A murder investigation is a time-consuming, high-resource venture, and if we consider that the most recent crime statistics released point to an average of 58 murders in South Africa per day, is there any question that our resources are pushed to the maximum? M interviewed Wendy Pascoe, another South African private investigator. She was previously with the Pink Ladies and wanted to do more, so she got her private investigation license. During the interview, she mentioned that due to the increase in demand for private investigators, the industry is seeing a lot of bogus investigators who are simply taking the money from desperate families and not providing the service that they are paying for, nor are they even trained to provide that service. A private investigator will usually ask for a retainer of around 50,000 rand, which covers costs for resources, as well as flights and travel where necessary. Pasco specializes in missing person cases and says that she has found that about 80% of the cases she investigates are related to drugs and there has been criminal activity involved in the disappearance. An interesting point that Wendy raised is that you cannot put a minor child's face on a missing poster without an SAPS case having been opened. I know that the pink ladies will not look at a case until a case number is available. There is no waiting period to report a missing person in South Africa, and no matter what anyone tells you, the SAPS must accept your missing person report from within minutes of when a person is considered missing. Since I've been doing this podcast, many family members have made contact with me, asking me to help them with their family members' cold cases. On every occasion, I make it very clear that I am not a member of law enforcement, nor am I a private investigator, or anything close to that. I explain that I don't investigate the cases I cover on the podcast, but rather I gather research and talk about them in order to gain awareness and start a conversation about the case. On most occasions, the families are happy for even that exposure, and if there's enough information available, I'll cover the case. I do think it is very important for people like me and writers and bloggers and really anyone that is producing content in the true crime arena to be very clear to families and the public that we are simply ordinary citizens with an interest in researching and producing content around these cases. 
we are not going to investigate and solve the case ourselves. Yes, the awareness we bring could, and in many cases does, elicit leads which could help solve a case. But it would be law enforcement or a qualified private investigator that takes those leads and follows them up, not me. In some cases, I've had to recommend that the families go back to the police before I cover the case, because there will sometimes be a lull in communication with the family by law enforcement, where the family thinks that nothing's happening, but in reality, the police are at the point of arrest or tracking a perpetrator, and a public outcry is actually the worst thing for that investigation. So there's really a balance that needs to be struck between a voice for the victim and not doing more harm than good. I hope that gives some explanation about why I'm quite selective about the unsolved cases I will cover on the podcast. Okay, so that's going to be it for this Spotlight Minisode. I am hard at work putting episode 9 together for you. And I'll give you a clue in that it is a serial killer case. And that's all I'm going to say about that, because I know how you love to guess. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our mini-sode this week. If you enjoyed it, please follow us on the podcatcher you use, and remember that we are all over social media too. You can follow us and discuss cases on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, Thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.